For the first time in four decades, nations have agreed to a new framework protecting the world's oceans. Years of negotiations culminated in 38 hours of talks in New York, thrashing out a new treaty that aims to place nearly a third of the high seas into protected areas by 2030. Just take a listen to Rena Lee, the president of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Marine Biodiversity, wiping tears from her eyes. She brought uh, this. She brought them down to a standing ovation for delegates. Good evening, ish, ladies and gentlemen. The ship has reached the shore. Um, thank you very much. We still have work to do. Rena Lee, the president of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Marine Biodiversity there. Peppy Clark is the Ocean Practice Leader for the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, WWF. Welcome to RM Breakfast. Good morning. This is clearly an emotional moment for those in the room in New York who worked very hard to get to this outcome. What has the last decade of negotiations been like for those agitating for change? It's been, it's been a long road. Uh, as you said, it's been 40 years since the last major changes to, to the way that we manage our oceans through the law of the sea. And, and those changes allowed governments to, to manage their marine waters out to 200 nautical miles. But that left the, the remaining two-thirds of the oceans largely unregulated. And so uh, advocates, government negotiators, uh, experts have been working solidly for for 15 years or so to bring this home. And uh, and for those in the room, it was an enormously emotional um, moment and a, a great achievement, really, for our ocean. Okay, you mentioned, you know, this, it sounds very colourful, this language of the high seas, but it's something that's actually defined by this treaty. So can you just define the, the high seas, where the high seas are uh, and why they've been so hard to regulate? So since since 1982, um, countries around the world with coastlines um, have have been entitled to uh, to manage exclusive economic zones up to 200 nautical miles from our shore, and, and that's the case here in Australia. Um, but the area beyond that 200 nautical mile limit, uh, which is regulated by a patchwork of incomplete international agreements is the area that we call the high seas. It accounts for about two-thirds of the ocean surface or nearly half the planet. So what will the new high seas treaty try to do? Uh, yes, regulate, but how and and how can it achieve those aims? Well, for the first time, we'll have a coherent global framework for conservation of nature in the high seas. It's a it's a biodiversity focused agreement, so it's specifically focused on the natural values of the high seas, and the the two principal mechanisms by which it will seek to to protect um, the oceans, the high seas, are, are familiar to us from the land. Uh, so, protected areas, areas that will be set aside. Um, where fishing and other pressures will be reduced or, or prohibited, and also environmental impact assessment procedures, which don't currently exist for most areas of the high seas. So that's a, a process by which the, the impacts of proposed activities are assessed and then, and then approved. The, the, the implementation will be complex because no single government has authority over the high seas, and so it will rely on a patchwork of regional bodies and of governments regulating the actions of their own citizens, companies and, and vessels.
How much fishing goes on in the high seas and uh, how much will this reduce it by? Well, the the fishing pressure in the high seas uh, is only partially regulated. There are a few highly migratory species, such as tuna species, that are uh, partially regulated. But much of what happens in the high seas is is unregulated in that there are no laws applying to it uh, or it's illegal or, or unreported and also heavily subsidised. So much of the fishing that goes on beyond exclusive economic zones is only commercially viable because it's it's subsidised. So this agreement, we hope, will provide a, a mechanism for uh, protecting areas of the high seas from multiple species um, from uh, from fishing pressure. Uh, time will tell as to, to how much it will reduce that fishing pressure, but it's certainly something uh, that the ocean would benefit from. When you say it's subsidised, what do you mean by who? Uh, typically by national governments. So uh, regional organisations like the European Union and countries like China um, subsidise their fishing vessels to uh, to increase fishing production, often in places where it doesn't really make commercial sense to do so. Because it's very, uh, just in terms of the practicalities, because it's incredibly hard to get out there, right, yeah. to, to <laughs> sure, do this, if we right. can be blunt. <laughs> That's that's absolutely right, and and some fisheries, <clears throat> some high seas fisheries are, are commercial in their own right, but uh, but but many uh, would be less viable without those subsidies. And there has been progress on that front through another policy process in the World Trade Organization. So we're we're hoping that that will bear fruit in coming years. Look, for decades, fishing rights have been the huge point of contention in these negotiations. So how have they been settled? They've been settled in the sense that uh, that fishing falls within the scope of the environmental impact assessment procedures and falls within the scope of the marine protected area provisions. There were attempts to remove fishing, uh, to, to exclude fishing, for example, from, from the protected area provisions, which makes very little sense given that fishing is the principal human activity and, and environmental pressure. Uh, beyond national jurisdiction. So fisheries have remained within scope and that means that uh, if high, when high seas marine protected areas are declared uh, that they will be able to regulate or, or even prohibit fishing within those areas if governments agree to that. I've got a question from a listener that asks, what's the position on underwater weapons testing and other disturbances in the high seas environment? Is there is there any clarity on that kind of angle? That is a it's a good question. Um, one where I'm not across the specifics, there are existing international agreements in, in relation to, to nuclear testing. Um, and so those, uh, those in existing arrangements uh, control mm. nuclear testing at sea. Um, for other non-nuclear weapons, I can only assume that they would be captured by the, the broad environmental impact as assessment provisions that have just been agreed through this treaty. How long until this treaty applies to Australia? It's a great question. So the the um, there are two key procedural steps. The treaty now needs to go through a series of, of final legal technical checks, not further negotiation, but further checks. And then the parties will reconvene to formally adopt the treaty. That was simply because they ran out of time in New York last week. Um, the, the treaty then needs to be ratified. So each country needs to take the treaty home and formally commit to the treaty. I understand that the requirement is is around is for 60 countries to agree. Australia can play a valuable role here by being one of the early movers. Once we hit 60 countries that have formally ratified, then the treaty will come into effect. Uh, and that means 
for example, that environmental impact assessment procedures will then apply to our once the once the detail that the implementation mechanisms have been established, that will then apply to Australian nationals and the nationals of other countries. Has Australia indicated whether it wants to be an early adopter? Well, we know that Australia has played a constructive role in the negotiations. Uh, the current government committed to do that when they, uh, during the last election, and they've delivered. They uh, they played a very useful role in in the negotiations, bridging differences between parties. Um, we hope that they'll be a, an early ratifier and also a champion of future proposals for uh, for high seas marine protected areas. Pepe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Pepe Clark is the Oceans Practice Leader for the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.